Welcome back to the History of the Barbarians podcast, episode 21, A Gothic Tragedy. My name is Josh Hirschman, and we are here to continue our journey through the story of the Goths. Last time we looked at their settlement within the Roman Empire in the wake of the Gothic War and into the turbulent times prior to the rise of Alaric. This week we look at the rise of two of the favorite barbarians of the Romans, whose lives are intertwined with the empire, Silico and Alaric. Last episode, we delved into the rebellion of Alaric in 391 and 392, where we see Stilicho best Alaric and force the Goths back into a federati agreement with the empire. Alaric and his Goths settled back into the same, or at least a similar agreement, as they did after the Gothic War ten years earlier. We introduced Alaric, but we did not get to give the proper background on him in the last episode, so let's remedy that situation now. Alaric was born probably around the year 370 CE, while the Goths still resided north of the Danube. He was supposedly born on Puke Island in the mouth of the Danube River. The islands of the Danube had long been a place for the Goths at this point, as the waters in this area would freeze more easily than the faster-flowing parts of the river upstream. The river turned Puke Island into a peninsula sometime in the Middle Ages, and I will try to post some pictures of the area on Twitter and on the Facebook account to give us a visual. He was born into the noble Balti family, either the son or the grandson of a man named Rothestus. We know that Rothestus had a son named Atherid, who would have been either the uncle or brother of Alaric. Atherid is famous for his persecution of Sabas the Goth, the martyr story we discussed way back in episode 10 during the persecutions of Gothic Christians by the pagan reek Athanaric in the early 370s. By the time that Alaric becomes a man, he, like most of his group, are Arian Christians. And as a reminder, many of the Goths that came across the Danube back in 376 CE were indeed Arians, and many more converted as they settled into the empire. Alaric's family story is hard to pin down, but most of the sources that discuss these things agree that he was orphaned at a young age. He is perhaps raised by Fritigern or other noble Greeks during their movement into the Roman lands and during the following rebellion. In regards to his family, we only know of a brother-in-law named Athol, who is going to be very important to our story as our narrative continues. Alaric grew up within the rebelling Goths and witnessed firsthand their trials, the battles, the constant plundering, hungry periods, ups and downs during the Gothic War. As his group settles in as Federati and Moesia, he's coming of age and still witnessing the difficult trials that this new relationship with Rome establishes for his people. As Alaric settles into this renewed position and the people strike up their old relationship with Rome, they would be called on once again to fulfill their fighter requirements as they had during Maximus's usurpation in 388 CE. The young emperor of the West, Valentinian II, has spent more than the last decade as the nominal ruler of the West, but in reality, he was the pawn of more powerful people, including his mother and the bishop of Milan, St. Ambrose. The latest man to control him was named Arbogast, whom we have spoken of before back in episode 19, when he had been sent by Gratian, the Western emperor at the time, to make sure that Fritigern's group during the Gothic War would stay in the eastern portion of the empire in just the last years of that war. After the death of Maximus in 388, Arbogast would serve as Valentinian II's Magister Militum 
a key advisor and essentially the man controlling the emperor. Now, Arbogast was a Frank by birth. He came from a family of Franks who apparently worked their way to high ranks within the Roman army. His uncle was Ricimer, the Frankish general who cautioned Valens to be patient and wait for Gratian before the Battle of Adrianople. And we all know how that turned out. Also, Balto, the general who Arbogast accompanied Western uh, troops with in the latter years of the Gothic War to make sure that Ferdinand's people stayed in the Eastern Empire, was said to have been his father, but what is more likely that he was just some sort of relation to Arbogast. These Frankish men would be very loyal Roman generals, which is proven by Arbogast's defeat of Frankish armies that crossed the Rhine in 381 to plunder Roman Gaul or modern-day France. So this Frank proved to be much more Roman in service against the Franks. All through his career, Arbogast has proven himself to be a very capable general, most say the best in the empire, as well as an adept politician, rising to the highest heights available to a non-aristocratic Roman. Whether one is a barbarian by birth or a plebeian, it was impossible to rise to the level of Augustus, but Magister Militum, the highest rank in the army, would be within reach at this point in the empire a position that Arbogast would reach upon the death of his relation, Balto, in 385, and the death of Maximus in 388. The latter event he would use to ally himself with his uncle, Ricimer and Theodosius, in order to put himself in the good graces of the political elite of the empire. He would then use his position to become the regent and de facto ruler of the Western Empire, as Valentinian still technically ruled the West. Valentinian has grown up in the intervening years and is ready to cast off the controlling Arbogast, but the Frankish general proved to be strong for the young emperor. Basically, Valentinian tried to fire Arbogast, and the elder Frank told him that he pays the note around here and sent the emperor to his room. The emperor was found hung in his chamber shortly after this little exchange. He died at the age of 21 and was an Augustus for 17 of those years, but not one would be without the crushing weight of a more powerful person in control. Suicide was the ruling by Arbogast, but of course it was suicide because, of course. Now, it is not all clear that Arbogast would really want to do in Valentinian, but of course an opportunistic Theodosius is going to use this situation to his advantage. The Eastern Roman Empire was ruled by Theodosius still at this point. And he did not immediately appoint a new emperor for the West. Eventually, Arbogast, the Magister Militum, and the real power in the West would get tired of waiting and need to appoint a new emperor himself. Obviously, being a Frank, Arbogast knew that he could not don the purple. So he found an aristocrat that had particular allies within the Roman Senate. Eugenius was part of an old family that could provide friends in the West against the Eastern Empire if Theodosius decided to ever come over and appoint his own ruler. Eugenius and Arbogast rule in the West for a short time and solidify their power throughout Italy. Much of the ancient, powerful families in the Senate are still pagan at this point, so the duo do many things to placate that faith. They rebuild temples to gods that had been torn down during Christian persecutions by Gratian and others before him. The pagans rebound and are able to share power for the first time since after Constantine the Great's victory at the Milvian Bridge. The emperor in the eastern and the senior Augustus 
Theodosius allows for this situation to persist for a couple years, but things would come to a head. He would eventually call for the killer of his co-ruler, Valentinian II, to be brought to justice and to remove the usurper Eugenius from his illegal position. Meaning, Theodosius is going to march into Italy and take the Western throne for himself, killing both Eugenius and Arbogast. He would need to build a strong army, though, as Arbogast is the best general in the Roman Empire. He would call forth his best legions and allies to form into this army. Included in this would be the commander-in-chief, Timaeus, Stilicho, and Gainus, a goth himself. Alaric's would answer the Federati call with 20,000 troops. And Alaric would seek a Roman command, but would be denied this title countless times in the next decade and a half, but starting here. So, Alaric Scots would fight under command of the Romans, taking orders from their generals. He would serve directly under Gainus. Alaric would resent this position as Gainus, who is not of noble birth, but would be promoted through the ranks of the empire based on his merits, is an example of a man and a command that Alaric felt that he could or should have had. Gainus will be in and out of our story for the next several episodes, so keep him in the, on the back burner. Silico, though, will go on to play a vital role, so let's give him a proper introduction now. Silico was born of a Vandal cavalry officer and a Roman mother. He was therefore a barbarian, but never considered himself anything other than a Roman. His barbarian roots would be the source of constant rumors and whispers throughout his life. His birth was in the year of 359 CE, making him in his early 20s when he came to Theodosius' attention as a capable individual. Indeed, he would find himself in the year 383 traveling to the court of Shapur III to reach a peace deal with the Sassanid Empire. Leading a delegation at a relatively young age, 23 or 24, and considering his half-barbarian heritage shows how much Theodosius thought of him. Furthermore, Stilicho would marry the emperor's daughter, Serena, when he would come back from the strip. They would go on to have two daughters and one son. Stilicho was also a Nicene Christian, like his benefactor, Theodosius, and therefore would support the latter's persecutions of Arians and pagan believers in the empire. As he rose through the ranks of power within the empire, he proved himself an effective general. This role is where we will see him in our story primarily. Alaric has already encountered and was trapped during the short-lived Gothic Rebellion in 391-392 by the half-vandal general. Now, Stilicho will be one of the commanding generals of the army of Theodosius, comprised of Alaric and thousands of his Goths that were once his enemies. And this brings us back to our story at hand. The two halves of the empire meeting finally to settle the dispute over Eugenius's claim to emperor in the west. A bit of an aside at first, uh, concerning Stilicho at least. I rolled around the idea of doing a whole episode on Stilicho because, as a half-vandal, he is a barbarian, which fits our show. Additionally, he's so important to our story in the next several episodes, he will be around for a while and probably worth his own time. But I am hesitant for two reasons. First, Stilicho has been covered on other podcasts pretty well already, including the history of Rome. Secondly, Silico never really acted as anything but a Roman. Certainly, he did not make decisions for the benefit of any barbarian group, uh, at least if it did not also benefit Rome primarily. So I'm not sure how to treat him, 
if anyone has an opinion on if Stilico should get the in-depth coverage an episode would entail, uh, let me know on Twitter or on the Facebook page, and we can go from there. All right, back to the story. Eugenius and Arbogast, who were Christian, had allied themselves with many rich and powerful pagan Romans. They supported the return of many of the temples and pagan icons in not just Rome, but all throughout Italy. Because of this, Theodosius built the conflict up as a battle against the heathens. And he had 18 months to two years to build this up as Christians versus pagans before the armies would actually meet. So it was easy to build this narrative because Arbogast, the real ruler, was a barbarian. And many considered the moves to restore pagan altars like the altar of Nike in the Roman Senate and others as moves to bolster paganism despite the nominal Christianity of both the Emperor Eugenius and Arbogast. I would like to point out that two of the key players on either side of the armies are Frankish generals, Arbogast and Ricimer, who have both proven to be capable generals and are actually related, but they both stayed true to their loyalties and certainly both believed that the other was not supporting the true Roman emperor. Ricimer, though, would never actually meet his nephew in battle. He would die suddenly while marching with the army somewhere in modern-day Serbia. The Ricimer-less Eastern Army would finally meet the Western Army at the Battle of Frigidus, which will take place on September 5th and 6th in 394 CE at the Vipava River, called the Frigidus River then, in modern-day Slovenia, near the Italian border. Arbogas chose to take a defensive position in the valley. Instead of splitting up his troops to block the various paths through the Julian Alps, like Maximus had done against Theodosius six years prior. He is consolidating his forces as the aggressor, Theodosius, who is marching his army from Constantinople into Italy, would be emerging from these Julian Alps and would have his movements restricted by the Western Roman armies as they came down out of the mountains through these various paths. The forces were roughly equivalent, but certainly Arbogast was still probably considered the better general and had a better starting position. As the battle began, the first day proved to be a bloody one. Alaric and his Goths make up the frontline forces of the Eastern Roman Empire, and on the first day of the battle bore the brunt of Arbogast's legions. The Goths are said to have lost 10,000 of their 20,000 in just the first day. Theodosius was probably trying to strike at two birds with one stone when he sent the Goths in as the shock troops against the Western Empire's forces. The Goths had obviously proven to be a thorn in the side of the Romans, so by using them to defeat the usurper Eugenius and also weaken the Goths, Theodosius is able, again, to do two things at once. So at the end of the first day of the battle, Theodosius's troops returned to their quickly assembled camp, knowing that they had not broken, but they were soundly defeated. Arbogast, with the knowledge that he had the upper hand, decided to send some troops at night through the mountain passes to cut off any escape of the Eastern Army, as he was sure that he would break and destroy them in the next day's hostilities. These troops that were sent to cut off the Eastern Army were bribed by Theodosius, and they trade sides to fight for the East. But the real game changer comes the next day with a surprise weather phenomenon. 
This part of the world is famous for a weird, super strong wind gust called a bora, which will kick up dust and small debris because of its over 300 kilometer or 180 mile per hour gusts. It's been noted that fish have been thrown out of water because of this phenomenon. Waves have crested in lakes over 10 feet high. It is a crazy weather occurrence, and in this case, it will change the tide of the battle. As the second day proceeds, the troops of the West, who just the day before felt that they were close to victory, are now fighting not only Theodosius' troops, but also this Bora. The high velocity wind was battering the Western Empire's armies, limiting their movement, stopping spears and arrows in midair. This is enough to give Theodosius and his legions an edge that they utilized immediately. The legions of the West are routed, and Eugenius is captured during the battle. He is quickly declared a traitor and found guilty, and then executed. Arbogast escapes into the mountains and hides for several days, but eventually commits suicide on September 8th, thus ending one of the more successful runs of a barbarian general in the employment of the empire. Theodosius would now claim both halves of the Roman Empire for the first time in half a century and begin to establish himself as the sole ruler. Now, the Goths would stay with Theodosius to help secure power in Italy as the new Roman emperor sets up his base of operations in the northern part of the Italian peninsula in Milan. They were forced to continue to stay and serve the Romans instead of being released from service and sent home to Moesia, which this point will be important. Theodosius would die on January 17th, 395 CE, just four months after the Battle of the Frigidus. And yet the Goths stay in northern Italy with no enemies of Rome to fight. Theodosius and company would reverse the rulings of Arbogast and Eugenius, especially involving the pagan revival, and begin anew the persecutions of pagan and Arian heretics, with the Goths being Arians. During Theodosius's four months after the Battle of Frigidus and during the time period after his death, these persecutions would put more pressure on the Goths in northern Italy. Stilicho will finally discharge the Goths from their posts with the Roman armies, and Alaric leads what is left of his troops home. The Eastern Empire forces had used up all of their supplies getting to the Battle of the Frigidus and then consolidating power in northern Italy. When the Goths are sent home, they did not have food or water to keep them sustained. When you have 10,000 angry, frustrated, homesick, and hungry Goths, there's going to be trouble. It took the Goths 10 weeks, good time considering they plundered and stole supplies through Elysium and Pannonia all the way back to their homes in Moesia. Now, as they are trying to hurry their way back to Moesia, Sometime during their march back, or perhaps even when they were stationed in northern Italy still, they learned of a large group of Huns that had come across the frozen Danube River during the winter of 394 395 CE. These Huns began to raid the Goths' home in Moesia. Theodosius had marshaled all the troops that he could so that he could defeat Arbogast and Eugenius at the Battle of Frigidus, but this left the borders of the Eastern Empire vulnerable. And we see for the first time a large group of Huns directly attack the Roman Empire. In Moesia, the soldiers that were settled in that region, the Goths, to defend the border, are in northern Italy helping secure Theodosius' claim to the empire. 
So we have to keep in mind as we build to Alaric's Rebellion in 395 that the Goths once again are forced into a position that would push any people to desperate measures. The Huns would pillage Moesia, where the Goths' homes were, move south into Thrace, and then would retreat back through Moesia and the Danube all before the Goths are able to arrive home. When they do get back to their homes in Moesia, which have been ravaged by the Goths twice, they have now come to a realization that their relationship with Rome is no longer tenable. All these factors lead to the decision by the Goths to elect Alaric as the king of the Goths. It is this event that we pinpoint as the creation of the Visigoths. This is the name that will go down in history for our group, and we will now use that for them and their progeny for approximately 400 more years in our story. And so, as we give birth to the Visigoths, this is a good point for us to stop and move on to our story next week, which will begin with the Alaric's rebellion of 395 as the leader of the Visigoths. So some of the sources that I used for this week's episode include Gedega by Jordanus, Rome's Gothic Wars from the 3rd century to Alaric by Michael Kulikowski. Historia Nova by Zosimus. The Goths by Herwig Wolfram. And The Roman Empire and its Germanic Peoples by Herwig Wolfram once again. If you like the show, please give a review on iTunes, Google Play, or the other platforms out there. Check out the History of Barbarians Twitter account and Facebook pages for more information about our barbarians and some images. And a big thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.